Do you want to be of service to your community? And do you think there is value in offering your gifts without the expectation of anything in return? In this episode, Joanne Murray and I dive deep into these questions and so much more. Joanne has over 30 years experience in the nonprofit sector. As an executive director and board member, she has seen firsthand the impact that the right systems, processes, and knowledge can have on the success of charities and nonprofit organizations. Beyond supporting organizations and improving their impact, Joanne helps people lead from their heart while actionizing their values and principles. Human systems are complex, but there are common needs and qualities that connect us all. Listen to this episode to learn simple practices that we can implement to make a big difference today. Thanks, Joanne, for taking the time to come on. I know you've been busy and have so many different projects and, and things on the go, but I'm really excited to talk to you about your experience in the not-for-profit world and so much of what you've done. In our last conversation, I was amazed and interested to, to hear more. I felt like I just started getting the stoke of the fire. So as we get going and, and before we get deeper into what you've been doing more recently with the consulting work and, and helping other not-for-profits. I'm curious about what brought you into the not-for-profit world in the first place. Yeah, that's one of those serendipitous things that happens, I guess, when the universe has a plan for you that you don't know. <laughs> you don't know yet know what it is. Um, so the first 15 years of my life post High school graduation. Um, I had I had plans to go into teaching, um, and I remember my uh, grade twelve teacher telling me that um, I should not do that because there at that time <laughs> it was such a mm -hmm. uh, glut of teachers that he felt I would be unemployed. A period in time. So that kind of left me reeling. I didn't know what else to do. So I just went to work. I just went to work. I did admin work uh, for 15 years. I just went from job to job to job. Uh, I was unhappy, unfulfilled. I would get into a job and six months later start looking for another job. Um, so in the first 15 years of my career, I don't think I lasted more than two years in a job. Um, I felt it was the company. So every time I went someplace new, I thought it was the company. Um, and then in 1995, um, I was doing a computer training. So I, I just was self-employed doing software training. And I had two different friends who didn't know each other, um, but knew me, who both came to me days apart and said, there's a job uh, that I know about with the Jordan Howard Society, um, and we think you'd be really good for that. I did not know who the John Howard Society was. I didn't know what the nonprofit sector was, actually. I, I just didn't know. I worked in government and private sector. Um, and I thought, well, that might be cool to have a little bit of extra cash. It was a part-time job. Uh, so I did the interview. I got the job. And 
really soon into it, I just uh, felt like this is the coolest job. <laughs> um, in the one sense, so yeah, it was um, her time job, but I had the opportunity to grow it to full time. Um, and straight, I just found that exhilarating. It was like owning your own business. I had a lot of freedom in terms of how it was to be designed, what kind of programs I could design. Um, but very quickly, because I was working with people who were in the justice system, who wanted to do better, wanted better for themselves, um, and started seeing people make changes, I don't know, you know, start working towards some of their goals and dreams, that that just started feeling really good to me. Like I felt that I found my purpose. Um, and it became not a job at all. That's an old cliche. If you love what you do, it you'll never work a day in your life. And um, I just, I looked forward to coming to work every day. And I stayed for 27 years. So that's kind of wow. demonstrates this <laughs> analogy. It's actually true. <laughs> no kidding. Wow. That's, that's very interesting. 27 years. And when you started off, that was a part-time opportunity. Were you still doing another job on the side or at, at first? Yeah. yeah, I was still still doing computer training on the side. And I love that because um, I do have an entrepreneurial spirit. I've, I've um, That really fuels me. And I was able to use that to build the organization. So, yeah, when I started, I was half-time, part-time. And um, there was another part-time person. We had one little uh, contract. And every year for the first five years, I was able to double the revenues by bringing in different contracts. Yeah. Um, by the time I left, and we owned about um, $7 million worth of property. Uh, 30 affordable housing units, about 20, 24 office spaces, um, community rooms, 17 different pro uh, programs, contracts. Um, so it was like growing a business, right? Except you ha I had the um, bad approach. Of um, doing, do like working with people, helping people move forward in their lives. So it, it's just was like it's it's a huge privilege to to do the work that I did. Um, that's incredible, and I I think you've alluded to it in certain aspects and touched on it. But I'm curious if you'd like to elaborate on like what it what was it really that hooked you. After that was fifteen years of choppy employment, what was it that really grabbed you and pulled you in? Yeah, it was it was the meaningful nature of the work. So, as an admin, you know, I, there it, it is an important piece of an organization having a good organized admin person. Um, but I never saw, I never saw the impact of my work. I never saw. 
where I fit into the larger picture of an organization. And I worked for everything from uh, municipal, provincial, federal governments and private sector in a bunch of different industries, um, fisheries and um, I can't even remember the other ones I worked for now, but um, there, there was just nothing meaningful about the work that I did. Um, to show up to your job, go home. And yeah. Um, yeah. And for me, um, I need more than that. I have a lot of friends who are quite happy to, to do that and find that fulfilling. For me, I needed to connect with people. I needed to see that, um, um, I think early on, I didn't realize the power that we have as individuals to make a difference in somebody's life. Um, but as the years went by and I got feedback from some of the people that were helped along the way, um, I realized just how important like connecting with people, um, being truthful and honest and hopeful for others. What a difference that makes in their life. Um, and that you never know when something you say is going to be that tipping point for someone else. I like to either make them finally believe that they have the potential to do something where you give them a piece of information uh, that they use to um, connect with something else that just gets them over a hurdle. Um and yeah, it's like I can't think of any greater thing that somebody can do, right? It's just have an impact on somebody else's life that way. That's incredible. There's a few things that that really come up for me there. And that one thing that you just said is like that aspect of being truthful, hopeful, honest, and sure. not underestimating the power of of us just showing up in our presence and in our authenticity. Like what that can do to transform someone's life. And that can go beyond work. That can just go in our day to day and and particularly even showing up with our family at home. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one of the, I don't talk a lot about my own upbringing and the impact that's had on my ability to be truthful and open and honest and hopeful for others. Um, but growing up, um, I came from an alcoholic home, um, and for the first 19 years, until I moved out of the house, and my dad and I often joked about this later, um, he stopped drinking when I left home. He <laughs> <laughs> didn't say it had nothing to do, it was pure coincidence, but we often joked about that. Um, and for the next... Uh, I don't know how many years, I think probably another 38 years. He worked really uh, just devoted his life to working with other people trying to recover from alcoholism and, you know, opened his doors to open his home to people that were trying to recover and storm. So I got to see someone who, you know, before I turned 19, if you would have told me that. Um, he would have um, stopped drinking and got help for his anger issues and got help for um, other 
um, issues in his life, I would have laughed. I would have laughed in the face. Um, but he did. And so that gives me, that gives me a, like a unique vantage point when I have someone coming to me saying, I've always been like this, you know, I'm not going to change now. Oh, you know, I've been this way for so many years. Why bother? Uh, or my kids have written me off. Um, cause I've always been this way. I can have those conversations 100% truthfully that there's, you absolutely can take the steps to change. And here's some things you can do for your children. You know, as a, as a child of an alcoholic, I know what made a difference to me and just sharing that with them, um, helps them reconnect with family sometimes, not always. Um, so, and I, and I think, yeah, I mean, I, I think sometimes that's why if you think about life's bigger purpose, I think that's why I ended up where I did because, um, because I, or I do have that unique, um, vantage pro mm. that, that can help. Actually. That's amazing. Yeah. It sounds like there's been that, that theme of serving in your life. And I, I really agree with you on the aspect of like that, that whole saying, uh, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. I, I think it's a, a load of crap. And I think it does a disservice to us as, as individuals who are constantly, you know, there, there's this innate desire within us to learn and to grow. And just because we, we can close ourselves off, or I think it has a lot to do with distractions and all of these things, we get comfortable in certain patterning. And then all of a sudden we, we forget, you know, we forget that there's that degree of discomfort. It is, dis it is uncomfortable. Right. And, but yes, but that bit of discomfort, whether that's some self-reflection or some life-changing event, or, you know, cutting out something that was numbing all of these different emotions in your life and forcing you to, to sit with what's alive in you. Discomfort isn't something that's bad. And, and societally, I think we have a really weird relationship with that. And we almost create a culture that seeks as much comfort as possible at all times. <laughs> no, and discomfort is, is something we try to stuff down with food, mm. you know, substances, relationships, keeping busy. Um, yeah. Cause it is uncomfortable, but yeah, it, it, I find that People go along doing that. It's one of those gradually then suddenly things. It's it's okay. You don't notice. Flying with this and flying with this. And then all of a sudden, suddenly, it's like, okay, I'm no longer comfortable being this uncomfortable. Yeah. And I'm going to do something about it. That's it. And it just takes such great courage. Like, um, it's huge. It's huge. Tremendously so. And, and some people, you know, some of us can go a lifetime without really getting to that point. And, you know, sometimes it's that crisis point or that breaking point or these things that cause us to start to examine things in a different way. And it is, it is incredibly uncomfortable and it, it's incredibly courageous, but the pain and discomfort that will come from not living an examined life, we're, we will have to sit with that at some point. And that will be more uncomfortable than 
facing that <laughs> and giving ourselves that opportunity to grow. It's the rebirth stage, right? I wish I had not blown her the last 20 years or, oh, I wish I had reached out or whatever. Yeah. yeah. And and so I want to come back. I want to circle back to this theme that seems to be pretty common in your life and right down through, handed down from your parents and is this theme of being of service. And I'm wondering from your perspective, I, I personally think that that's an innate desire within each human, whether whether that's recognized and realized or not. I believe that to be there, but I'm wondering from your perspective, why is being of service something that's so fundamental to to who you are oh it's very juicy question <laughs> i've never thought about it before <laughs> i've never thought about it before i think on the surface um i just feel like i'm healthy but personally you know my addictions are not hurtful to me right i love food <laughs> I've been blessed with a certain degree of intelligence. I've got skills and I feel a sense of responsibility to use that. <laughs> if, and I, I don't know where that comes from. Maybe it comes from witnessing people who, who can't. And so I just, I think I've just always felt like, um, that I've had the responsibility. So uh, I was gifted with some things and I feel like I, people that are have to use those for good. I know that sounds arrogant and it may sound like I, I believe like I'm an appointed one or something, but it's very humble. It's an internal feeling of um, that's just my purpose like it's just what i'm here for there's a whole bunch of other things dimensions to me like business skills and teaching skills but i always find myself in places where i can be observed maybe that's the better way to put it it's it, it's often not a conscious thing yeah it's a deep question and I think, it, yeah, I, that's good. I love the questions that, that get the gears turning. And I, you know, it's something I've reflected on a lot. And I, I do actually believe it's it's pretty fundamental within all of us. And, you know, even in relationships, I've kind of had this principle. Ideally, when we meet people, we show up, we can each bring 50%, you know, and but there's times where somebody's down at 20% and then they need a a partner, a friend, an acquaintance, somebody in their lives to step up and be that 80% and help ground down. And I think that's an ongoing game that sometimes we're more vulnerable and we'll need that reflected back. But for me, being of service is actually also recognizing that we are interconnected with everything that is. And so being being of service to me is largely also reflected in this bigger piece. It's a recognition that your life being better is directly tied to my life being better. And more for you means more for me. And stepping into a mindset and a story of this world where abundance is not only a possibility, but it's a reality. And that we can co-create a, a life where all of us can thrive. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the piece you said about, um, you know, sometimes you're 80, sometimes you're 20. 
That's also a huge part of my belief system. I don't believe I'm any better than than the people I serve, right? Because I learn as much, I have learned as much from them as I have, you know, from any book or any other thing that I've done. There's a saying, um, one of my favorite by a Jesuit priest, and I'll get it wrong, but it's something about you and I are the same. Um, we each learn from each other and, and we will each recreate each other. Um, and it's so true. Like it's, if you open yourself up to, um, learning from every interaction you have with people, um, then yeah, like I don't have a charitable mindset when I'm in service. It's not cause I'm better than, or I'm, you know, it's not, it's, it's like a mutual thing. That's beautiful. I, I, I think that's, that is the reality, right? It's like kicking out that hierarchical model of things and really returning to an interconnected circular, you know, level, level ground and showing up in that way. And, and one framework or model that I've really contemplated for the last few years of my life is the idea of relationship. And I'm talking about relationship to anything outside of us, be it people or things or whatever, is relationship being a mirror. And relationship in that mirror, what we see will reflect back what we love, what we don't love. And for me, that's been of, of great service because it's really focused my energy and my attention on myself, not in a selfish way, mm. but in a way is where does my work lie? <laughs> right. Yes. Yes, exactly. And work is in just being. Just being. It's just being. Um, because like you said, every connection you make, every interaction you have with somebody is potential to be life-changing either way. Totally. Yeah. And and that's the seed of an amazing opportunity there. So yeah, there's some there's some juicy stuff. And I think sometimes looking in those mirrors is very another part that's very uncomfortable. And it's so easy to other by applying a label, by dehumanizing somebody by separating. And I think we've seen a lot of that in the last couple of years and so much of where we need to go. And I think to uplift us as a human species is, is healing, healing ourselves, being able to see the humanity that underlies and, and really remember in our arts that there's actually more that connects us than there is that divides us. Well, very much so. And in my work with homelessness, that's one of the things it's one of the most damaging things we can do to another human being is um, point fingers and make judgments. Um, I can tell you that our view of ourselves comes from outside, right? How the words we hear other people say, the words we read, um, how we're treated, and when you continue to hear um, nasty things and judgmental things said about you, you it just pushes you further and further and further away. Um, and it's that's a really hard thing to come back from. It's a really hard thing to, um, you know, when you lose hope and you lose dignity, it really doesn't matter what you do. It, you know, you don't care what you do after that. Everybody's already formed an opinion. Everybody's already shut me out. So it really doesn't matter what I do. So for someone 
like that. And that's any vulnerable um, segment of the population. So, you know, people with disabilities, people of minority, uh, uh, seniors, anything. To come back from that, like, that's amazing stuff. To, to do that work is, wow. Um, yeah, so, it, yeah. Let me ask you a question. Being, being somebody who's been so involved in homelessness, I've had conversations that range widely in, in that topic. Um, and I think there's, there are some differently held beliefs around homelessness. And what would you say to somebody who would say, well, you know, these people are just lazy. These people are just a bunch of addicts or all of these things. Like what, what's your take when I'm sure you've heard that and I'm sure that hits close to home with the amount of work you've done. Yeah. Um, when someone says these folks are just lazy, I will often challenge back, well, would you hire them? So they're late. You perceive them to be lazy because they're not working. That's your perception of um, someone who is um, lazy is someone who is doesn't have to get up and go to keep a job or get a job. Um, the work a person who is homeless has to do to get through a day would blow your mind. From the minute they wake up in the morning, the first thought in their mind is, where can I get a cup of coffee? Where can I get something to eat? Where can I go where uh, the police aren't going to start me or the store owners aren't going to say something nasty um where can i get a little bit of cash so i can buy something to eat where do i need to go to avoid some undesirable people um then it's lunchtime and the whole thing goes where can i get a cigarette yes where can i get some drugs potentially where can i get some alcohol um, then, you know, it's afternoon and the cycle starts again for some, and then all evening they're thinking about where can I find a place to put my head down? And so there's never a rest. Um, the people that I know who have been homeless and then been housed, that initial transition of being in a room with their thoughts is sometimes so overwhelming that they can't stay in in a, their apartment or whatever because they're so used to running 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 all day long as far as addictions and mental health go oftentimes sadly that's not how people end up in homelessness but the longer they're in it the higher the likelihood of getting involved in that mm. i know people that have never um injected drugs before but because it's so prevalent and it's so cheap and life is so measurable that that's an escape it's a way of dealing with the situation that they're in and as far as mental health goes it's the same thing the longer you're in homelessness the worse off your mental health is and your physical so people and people end up in homelessness for 
relationships break down, lose their job, lose their housing for financial reasons. They have a lot of youth that are kicked out of the house for a variety of reasons or leave, you know, because there's abuse there or the parents don't accept who they are. So there's not one reason, there's not one pathway into homelessness and, and everybody's experience in it is different too. Yeah, totally. It's it's a good point that you're raising though about humanizing it. And each each case, like you said, is so different. It's so different. And I'm wondering with your vast experience in this, and I can't help but look out at where we're at financially with inflation going up, with rising house prices, with rising rent rates, with rising food costs. It seems like more and more people just based on the scenario that we find ourselves in seem to be pushed to the brink of homelessness just on on that in and of itself and what are some of the highest impact strategies or or approaches that have been that you've seen used to help reduce homelessness i would have to say things are things are worse now than they were years ago years ago if you were at a point where or uh, you couldn't afford to pay your rent anymore, families were more likely to let, you know, to invite family members back home, right? Uncles came, sons and daughters came. Kids let, uh, let the parents move back in who, you know, if one or the other found themselves homeless. There's less of that we're finding. So less couch surfing, less people sharing space together so that's a trend that that's frightening i think so yeah the, i mean the only strategies that we have out there now are is subsidized housing i would like to see a return to communal living where you think back to when when um like my grandparents came, came here from ireland and when they moved, they lived in a rooming house. So, and they, and it was all, the rooming house was filled with people with our, from Ireland. They had sort of like a den mother. That person cooked. Um, they had a, a social network. But they had a locked door, a safe place, and it was inexpensive. And I think we need to move back to that. I think people are missing that connection with others. We've housed some people from our from our shelter and they keep returning for the first month to stay connected with the other with their friends in the shelter. So you would think it would be I finally got housing. I'm gonna be so far away from that. But these are their friends. This is their family. And um, so I think it's a really healthy response that they keep connecting with. Um, with those people they know or trust and that treat them with respect. So if we can find other ways to connect people who have been homeless to the community. Um, just before I left John Howard, I designed a community hub. So housing with uh, 
came with community. Um, we had a community garden. It had um, a lounge uh, designed for each floor so that the guys could just sit out, sit in the hallway and chat with each other. Um, there were community rooms so that there could be activities that would bring people from housing into, for example, a commercial kitchen and that had also classes for people in community that lived around the building uh, so that that the people who moved into the affordable housing units wouldn't feel like they were coming into someone else's neighborhood. It was just that they belonged the same as everybody else in the four blocks around them and they could participate in the same activities um, and just meet each other in a in a common place. So I, I think that notion of community, um, that model for affordable housing is in place in other parts of the country. Um, and I think if we did more of that, that would be the helpful for those jobs for sure. There's some really good points, Joanne, and that, that sounds like an amazing project that you were working on at the yeah. end of that. I'm yeah. very curious to hear more, and I'm, I'm sure a lot of others would as well. And I think you're right. And there, there's so many uh, potential wraparound services as well that we I think we could ramp up with proactive supports for mental health and proactive supports for addiction. I know some of these things are just waitlisted beyond and we're or beyond capacity. And so I think there's a lot um, more at that proactive level that that we need to look at in, in so many aspects, you, you know, even down to getting better sports programs for kids is uh, another conversation I was having before. I imagine, you know, so many more of these funds were going that way instead of building new prisons and doing these different things. It would be uh, lovely to see. And a word you mentioned many times, I lost count, was community. And I'm really curious, in in America, in North America, so much of that fundamental value has been predicated or, or based upon this I, this notion of individualism and that, that self-made person we're going to come in. And, and that's been really underpinning that American dream, which so many of us have been going. And look, I mean, look at our housing structures. We've got everybody has their own ladder. Everyone has their own uh, lawnmower. Everybody's got their own individual things here. And that means that means you've made it. It doesn't matter if you're living paycheck to paycheck or doing all these things. It's a symbolic status that we've achieved something. And I'm curious about your take on, as you've kind of alluded to that, that shift towards a more communal living. I mean, if that's been such a successful model while addressing the most vulnerable in our society, What's your take on the power of, of community writ large as a, as a means of transforming our living societally? Or I think we have to go back that way. And I totally agree with you. Um, it's funny to the degree that a few years ago, I heard some news piece um, where someone had done research on the disservice that our youth are experiencing um, at not being able to live alone. 
And I'm thinking, that is not a disservice. <laughs> um, so it was, you know, our poor youth, they're growing up having to share space with other, like share an apartment with someone else because they can't afford to live on their own. Well, that's a good thing. Um, and so, yeah, I think think we're starting to see it more in neighborhoods. Um, I know in the neighborhood that I live in, we are uh, semi-detached, so there's a number of them. And we all, we all share, there's no fences, we all share sort of a common backyard. And you see people ch- chatting back and forth. And we had our neighbors come over last night and they've been admiring the rhubarb. And she came over with a couple of big zucchini and asked if maybe she could pick some of the rhubarb. And, you know, exchanged phone numbers because uh, she said, I noticed you guys were away for a couple of weeks and your garden was looking really dry, but I didn't want to go over and water it because I, I just didn't know how you'd feel about that. So, and I, I know other people that do the same, that are doing the same thing. Um, so I think we're seeing more of that. The, the segment of the population that I feel that is missing out on that is the seniors. I really do. Like there are so many single seniors that um, are alone in apartments where if they could live in something like this with a shared backyard so that they could actually get out and talk to people, I think that we'd have seniors living longer and more healthy um, in their homes. Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, I I think we're going to see a movement to that, and I feel strongly that we'll see it in the homelessness sector. It's already being talked about um, in the affordable housing sector, but I really think we need to look like at the prevention end of it um, to eat, like think about youth living in dorms. There's just such an advantage to living together with your people. You, if you don't know something, you can ask someone uh, next door, you know, how to, Hook. I don't know how to use the washer and dryer. I don't know where to go for this. Um, and yeah, I, I hope as a society we move that way. For sure. Seems like we might be needing to out of, out of necessity as well for, for part of that. Mm-hmm. One thing that's got me excited <laughs> as, as some of these projects, we've had that traditional model of the, the trailer park and these different things, but a kind of a, a newer spin on this that I have been really sinking my teeth into and inspired by lately is like tiny home communities that have almost like a, a central larger communal space for events, for a communal kitchen, for all of these different things. But these are, yeah, and kind of influenced by the permaculture principles. So within the land itself, there's communal gardens and shared access to to resources, perhaps like a tool library and a access to all of these different things. Like I think that gets me really excited uh, as far as different aspects of communal living. Let's reduce our own personal space a little bit, still have those things, but create more shared opportunities, more collaboration involved, more uh, reducing the redundancy of needing to own tools that are only used quite infrequently and 
and really being able to create networks of support for one another. As you said, that skill share in these different aspects. I love the concept of the triangles. It's very similar to how tent cities are run. <laughs> they create community norms. They share things with each other. They take care of each other. They step up, like self-appoint, you know, who's going to be the one to take care of the, the old guy in the tent? Who's going to make sure so-and-so wakes up every day? Who's going to, you know, I noticed Buddy hasn't had a lot of water, so I'm going to bring him some water. I'm going to pick up the meals. When I go to the soup kitchen today, I'm going to get an extra meal because I know she can sit. And so I'm going to make sure she's got something to eat. And that's that's what humanity is all about, really, like watching out for each other, taking care of each other, and bringing what you've got to the table and making room for others that have things to come to the table. And uh, like it works, it works beautifully. So yeah, when when you take that and you give them safer shelter, like warm shelter and a space that's their own um, and let let them manage their community, it, it works. It just occurred to me, we have a, a trailer in um, Hard Beach in a kid community with a bunch of other trailers. And it's the same kind of thing now that I think of it, like, if we're not there for a weekend, somebody mows our little piece of lawn. I came one day and all of our flowers, we had flower pots hanging and there was a big storm and they were flying all over the place. So somebody took them off and put them underneath our furniture, our lawn furniture. So when you live in a community like that, like everybody does naturally start to, to take care of each other. But it's when you get in apartment buildings right everybody shuts their door there's no common space nobody knows their neighbors um it's very lonely yeah yeah it's you're right and i i think again you're touching on that aspect of service like there's there's this deep desire in us to be able to contribute to the welfare of other people I think it's innate. It's inherent in the DNA of each of us. And when it's not, it means, to me, it means that there's some bit of sickness or trauma or lack of health that we have to work through in our own worlds before we can actually step into that. And so, I, yeah, I just have been really fascinated around that and, and creating cultures and cultural norms, as you said, rooted in trust. I think uh, it's a Taoist philosophy where they said, you know, trust people and they become trustworthy. And the more we can create these systems and structures that are rooted in inherent trust and not micromanaging, not, you know, bureaucratic top down, but actually grassroots bottom up that empower the individuals because healthy people want to serve. It's hurt people that hurt people. Right. And so how do we create systems and structures that, that heal, that are rooted in trust so that we can actually get down to the root of, of some of these great wicked challenges that we're being faced with societally and really do that work? Thanks. Well, if, have you um, 
looked at any of John McKnight's work. He does his his work is how to build community or how to create community, I think is what it is. And uh, one of the things he talks about is people's need um everybody needs a place where they can help others. Right? That's where we find meaning. So it is sort of being in service. And so when you think about, like, we do make judgments about community at like a tent city. People would never look at that as a community. That's just a bunch of addicts and whatever. Um, but, but you can see it. Like, they thrive when they can help others around them. And so, I, yeah, I don't, I don't think we can underestimate um, giving people an opportunity to have agency in their own life and in where they live. Um, and luggage. Yeah, the game changer. Couldn't agree more. I, I really, really think that's going to be... And we're, seems like we're playing a lot of whack-a-mole in terms of patching the holes in these in the things. It's like, at what point do you just like start to go deeper, start to, and really look at the fundamentals that are, that are guiding this. And I guess on that note, I'm curious for you, like what are some of the values and principles that guide that the work that you do? Yeah. Well, first and foremost, it's, um, it's in that people know what they need. Now I should never say, you know what, Stu, I think really you should be doing this. <laughs> I think really you should live here and you should go back to school and you should probably um, end that relationship with that person because they're bad for you. And um, you should go to church on Sunday and then you will be a good person because <laughs> that's what I do and I'm a good person. So I think that if you did that, you'd be a good person too. And so trusting that when someone says no trusting that people know what the choices that are right for them um and the other value would be um i'm not sure what the right word is but just you know like i'm no better than you just because i'm at and where i'm at i place to live and I have a car and I have a job doesn't make me any and uh, yeah so is that equanimity sure yeah maybe the other values would be like just respect and honesty when I'm honest with people, hopeful, always. Uh, that's the horror of how I go about every day. I also maybe I I like to so that that's in the people we serve. But then I've always believed in um, building like buildings people, but building people's potential. So even the staff and work at the agency. Yeah. Um, so where do you see yourself? Where, what, 
learning do you need? How do you need me to give you feedback? Um, what do you think we should do? So just that whole, just cause I'm the boss and just cause I've got 30 years in the industry doesn't mean that you'd also don't have something valuable to contribute and I'm all ears to listen. And like together we're going to build this. Um, I love that. I love that so much. And I think that's a perfect segue into the consulting work that you have been doing more recently. And so after 30 years working in this space, what is it that you've moved into now, Joanne? Yeah. So, yeah, because I had that privilege of um, learning by doing for 30 years, uh, I've found a few tricks and things that help me do my job as an executive director, as someone that runs the nonprofit and as a board member. Um, I, I feel like we, we have to start with the fundamentals. Um, I feel strongly that if people have come together in the name of a nonprofit, so we have a passion for homelessness. So we're going to open a new nonprofit that's going to help the homes. I believe that if you don't understand the fundamentals of running a nonprofit, that's everything from governance to funding to storytelling um, to financial management, you you may not get you may not have the impact that you really want, but if you take the time and invest in yourself in those five key areas, um, you'll have you'll make a greater impact than if you don't. Basically, um, a lot of a lot of grassroots nonprofits are built on passion and don't have the systems in place to to just get more work done, get do better work, have greater impact. So. In that sense of responsibility, we're in this business for the people we serve. It's a disservice if we don't get our ship in order so that we can serve them better. And Laurel, I don't know, because there's, you know, I know many nonprofits that just struggle more after more. Then the volunteers get tired and the paid staff get tired. And if they just had some of those fundamental skills, they'd be sailing. They'd be serving more people better. Yeah, I, I think that's so important. I, I, I'm definitely a systems thinker and big into design thinking. And I know even on a personal level, like I, I, I carry this book with me everywhere I go and it's full of... <laughs> all kinds of things. And I just have to get it down. If it's stuck up in here and it's some weird half-assed process or something that I'm not fully, it's the clarity is not there, then I know it's it's going to at least burn me out mentally. Even if I have a, a half-decent flow going, I really think there's so much value in mapping out, charting, creating these systems, creating the processes that allow for for high functioning teams to to really thrive because so much of it otherwise might feel like a you're kind of on a ship that's just constantly and not really lacking a lot of clarity i guess 
priority and you're going to go this way and that way and that way when you could say I'm sort of straight through or just a little bit civil law. When I started as an executive director, I had no experience. Uh, again, I didn't know how nonprofits worked. My board members also didn't know. So I wasn't able to get any feedback from them. I started in 1995 and my colleagues would have been Claudia Drachel. She was executive director of um, London Hitster. Nancy Hartling was executive director of Sports Single Parents. And a few other really powerhouse executive directors. And I was hugely intimidated. And I would never have picked up the phone and said, could you give me some advice a lot in this? I have no idea how to write a proposal. Could you help? I never would have made that phone call. And there was nothing else. I had to figure it out. I don't even know if we have <laughs> internet. I need to check my notes, but I honestly don't think I could have Googled. I don't think Google, I don't think was a thing in 95. No. <laughs> so I had to figure that out on my own. And it was, it was like walking through mud with, rubber boots on like it was really hard um and so if i can shorten that and like in that time that i was walking through mud i could have done so many other things so if i can shorten that time up for another executive director and stick like here's how to write a proposal that where your chances of success are going to be 90 percent instead of 10 and here's how to create a budget so that you're actually contributing to the sustainability of the organization instead of begging. And, and you know, I, I know a lot of people underfund themselves because they think it's greedy to ask for too much money. Or if I ask for too much, they might say no. Um, or they don't even realize the expenses or costs that they could include. They just don't even know that they could include them. And then that third piece is the evaluation. So you you got the money, you're doing the work, but you're so focused on doing the work that you forget to capture mm. the data. <laughs> and then when someone says, I remember the first time a funder came back to me and said, I don't just don't think that program works, so we're going to cut the funding. And I'm thinking... No, it works. It works. I see people every day, the difference. And he said, well, prove it because I don't see it. And I did not have the data. So I had to scramble and go back a year and a half and try to find the people who took the program and get them to tell me their story. And like I can tell you from that point on. And, I <laughs> <laughs> and but I captured it in a way, like put my shoe, put myself in the shoes of a funder. I've just handed you a whack of money and I need to know this is making a difference. So asking the right questions and then retelling that story in a way that matters, telling it to community so that you gain support for the work you're doing, telling it to your funder. So all of those things, I, I, love sharing that with other nonprofits so that they can just get on to the business of doing what they do, serving others, making a better person. That's huge. 
those are huge. And like some of those things you're not going to get unless you're kind of baptized by the fire and that, or you can get that support <laughs> and somebody to help work along. And th- this question I have that's kind of coming up might, it's, it's quite broad, but I'll let you take a stab at, at however, wherever that lands for you. And I'm, I'm curious in terms of like, when you're looking at some of these NGOs, whether it's one you've worked with, one you're just familiar with, like, what are some of those key indicators that you say, oh, they've got the systems or fundamentals in place. What are some of those fundamentals or indicators that you would look for that would, you would think that they'll probably be quite successful in their operations? Um, if they take the time to, to build the systems. So, um, system, um, like organizational systems. So literally filing systems Uh (laughs) where you keep all of your legal information. I worked recently with a nonprofit that didn't know where their letters patent were, didn't know if they were a registered charity or how um, so educating themselves, I think, on like who they are as an organization. So this was a new ED going into an existing organization. Um, like understanding your role as a board member, most board members don't understand what they're responsible for. Um, so learning, if you're going to volunteer and sit on a board of directors, know what you should and shouldn't be doing around the boardroom table and how you can support your executive director because um, they often work alone, uh, like in isolation, yet they have 12, you know, 10, 12, 15 bosses, each of the board members. Um, And if that relationship isn't right, um, that can put you at risk as an organization, but uh, it can also burn out the executive director or, you know, cause turnover. Um, and being focused. Um, as nonprofits, we often chase the money. And in the beginning, I was really good at, oh, I can make this fit that. I can make this idea fit that for me. Like, I can spin this to fit into that hole just to get the party. Um, and it's like an elastic. You can stretch yourself. Sometimes you can stretch yourself so far that you never come back to, you know, the, the same thing as you were when you stretched. So that's a dangerous thing for a nonprofit to, to just um, go too far off of your mission. Um, in pursuit of flipping. So maybe that is all packaged in like know yourself as an organization. What why are you here? What's your purpose? And then do everything to drive you to that. Yeah. I I love that. I, I think that's something that's kind of unsurfaced for me in the last few years as well. And I I have been interested in minimalism as a tangent uh, around stuff mm-hmm. for quite some time. And then I actually stumbled upon essentialism, which is minimalist philosophy, but for, for ideas, for lifestyles. And 
within the essentialist uh, philosophy, one thing they say is make the one decision that will make the thousand decisions to come. And I think everything you just pointed to is is so much about getting down to that. Like, what is the essence? What do we do here? What do we stand for? What is our why? And that why, if we're extremely clear on that, that will tell us about the roles of the individuals. It will tell us about what we do and and more, perhaps more importantly, what we're not doing. So we're not this trying to be everything to everybody all the time, which I could see that not not for profits, particularly when you're looking at trying to appease different funders or get money from different areas. I could see those organizations being pulled in, in so many different directions. Orly, I am a big student of essentialism. <laughs> oh yeah, I um, that was my um, that was my ticket to get off of the hamster wheel. Seriously, I read Greg McEwen's book that I think it had just been released, and um, guys did a little book club with we organized a book club around it. I was like, brilliant. I could tell oh, the man. answer. Yeah, yeah. And it, it is, it's, I had that written on my bulletin board in my office. What's the one thing that if I do that, everything else will get easier. And I use it often, even with the people we work with. Like you've got a million things you've got to deal with. What's the one thing we need to take care of that's going to make everything else easier, like right now? Um, yeah. I do too. <laughs> but it, it does, because you've also donors coming at you too. And when a donor um, has funding, sometimes they have conditions attached. Um, Like, we'll give you this money, but we want you to do this activity or we want you to advertise in this way or whatever. It can often pull you away from your mission. Yeah, that's something to be careful of. And I, I think even in our own personal lives, that essentialist philosophies. It's changed my life so profoundly. And one term I've been using lately, I said, it's like making space for the fuck yes. And it's like, that's really so much of what it's been for me. We have a culture that, you know, tells us in order to accomplish anything, we need to exert a force and do something and plan and make all the things. And like goal setting is great and doing is good, but we're human beings as well. And so We're not human doings and we can't just always spin the hamster wheel and frantically pull out everything we need. And I am learning to surrender to that. So I've been telling myself lately, thanks to largely to this essentialist philosophy, my job is to make space for possibility. My job is to filter out everything that is not fuck yes and just make space for the right thing in the right moment with the right people. It's, it's, that's, the key yeah yeah it's along the same lines as decisions we help our clients with decision making so we would never say you should stop blank or you should not do this the question i ask is is that decision leading you closer to your ultimate goal or farther away because like in the moment i'm all about (laughs) spiral and (laughs) i like shiny new things and i have had to stop myself and ask like okay if i do that 
is it going to pull me away from what I really want or lead me closer to it? And then thousand percent, thousand percent. And you know, that's where these opportunities come up that are good. You're like, well, they're bringing us money or they're doing these things. It's like, that's aside from the point. And, and that's the question that needs to be asked. Is it, is this really driving that ultimate purpose? And if not, then just kindly let that thing pass. It's hard to say no. It's very hard to say no. And the other trick is knowing what that ultimate goal is. Right? So I don't know. I believe that for a period of time, you have to chase squirrels to figure out like where where your big tree is. But, but once you get it, don't take your eye off it because, uh, yeah, you can get so caught up in and all of the things that feel good and, um, you know, for all kinds of reasons, we feel like we should do them. Uh, but in the end, they just keep pulling us away from what we ultimately Totally. And I, and I think there's truth in having to reevaluate what that why is. It will, it's a, it's an ongoing evolution process, but you're right. And it's challenging when we're in a culture that's instant now, instant gratification. It, it tells us both consciously and subconsciously that we can get, do everything all the time and all these things, but that's not the reality. We, as that essentialist philosophy says, we live in a world and there's got to be trade-offs. And so which things am I willing to let go of so that I can make space for really what's going to fire me up and serve that higher purpose? Yeah. Yeah. You know, we, we live in a society. Sure. Oh. You know, all the things you sh- you should do, like you should go to school yeah. and you should have a home and you should have this kind of car because that means you're successful yeah. and you should hang out with these people that you should oh, talk no, with. And that leads to fear of missing out. And Well, and yeah, for me, the big one was you, you should never say no to a business opportunity. If somebody says, could you do this? Like, and I'll pay you to do this as a as an entrepreneur, you should never say no, never turn down an opportunity. And I lived a lot of years doing that. And it really pulled me away from a lot of things that I, that I probably should have been doing instead. I, I hear you. <laughs> me too. And that bur- burnout has been a thing more than once. So I don't, don't want to end up there. And I'm sure in the non not for profit world, that is a common place from a lot of the friends that I've had is actually it's been. One of the big reasons that they've left, they felt a sense of purpose. They've felt all these things, but they've, you know, burnout has ultimately been a, a rough challenge for a lot of people I know that have operated in that space. Well, yeah, yeah. I I didn't I didn't experience burnout, but I I was probably like, okay, we're stalling. Yeah, and it's it's all of those things, all the expectations you put on yourself and the expectations others put on you and then the the feeling like you're not moving forward. And I think the work that I do now can actually avoid that, can actually avoid burnout because I know the weight that slurping through all of that stuff had on my shoulders and had I had the systems or checklists and sheets, the charts, I uh, it, it like would have been a lot easier. Totally. And so on that point, Joanne, 
anybody, I, I think there's tremendous value just in talking to you and hearing these things. And I've been a part of not-for-profits, uh, for-profits and bureaucratic organizations. And I, the things you've listed and, and mentioned are, are fundamental things that would help any culture or any organization move forward with more clarity, with less franticness, and really help move things forward. So if anybody is interested or any organization, where would they go to to get in touch or to contact you for for more? Um, they can email me directly at joanne at jmarieconsulting.ca. My website is almost finished, so it's www.jmarieconsulting.ca. Thank you, Cole. Six eight eight two five. Amazing. I'll make sure to have all of that listed in the in the show notes so anybody can easily access that and, and get in touch. And uh, is there any last messages or thoughts that you have for, for anybody in that space or, or in general? Um, just in general, I think um, I would say that, you know, you don't have to, there's, as board and executive directors, we often find ourselves like mired down in the I don't know. Um, and I asked that question, have you ever found yourself asking, what am I doing here? Or um, something similar to that, like I don't have a clue what I'm doing here. If that thought has ever entered your head, um, reach out. A, a quick phone call can save um lots of agony um a quick three-hour session can just write you get you back on track i do a quick organizational audit that's um something that comes out of imagine canada and it just lets you know like best practice your organization should be doing these things if you're not create a little operational plan for yourself and get back on track and it can just take the load off the stress load off and minimize your risk as a nonprofit and get you back to doing the things that you're kind of choosing. I love it. Well, thanks again, Joanne, for taking the time. I really enjoyed the conversations and, and where we veered off to, to touch on quite a few different topics. It was very interesting. Thank you. I really enjoyed it, Stu. It's a great conversation. Thanks for tuning in to this episode. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast and follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at Stu Murray Podcast. Check out the Stu Murray Podcast available on all streaming platforms and leave a comment or a review. Let me know if this episode resonated with you and what you want to hear more of as we move forward in the future. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next Monday.